What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Buffalo Beat. The Bills are now through the 2023 NFL Draft. They have added six members to the 90-man roster for the maximum 90-man roster. All six were draft picks, and they traded down a few times as the as the uh, days went along. Added some future picks, but inevitably they wound up with a draft class of six. Targeted some needs, did some things that, uh, uh, or weren't able to do some things that they wanted to do, and certainly the ripple effect of some of their their draft picks. Now we have to kind of recalibrate and see where they go from here with a lot of these spots. So I think the way that uh, that the best way to jump into this is really breaking this draft class down into three different uh, three different columns here. And the way that I that I'm going about this is things that they did and what that means to the short term and the long term, things they kind of did. And then the things that they didn't do and what their decision or how the board played out will mean to the short term for the 2023 roster and what will come to pass as things kind of go along and and guys get a little bit older in the system, the long-term perspective, like the, like the one to four year perspective, probably one to three year because you don't really want to project out too far when it comes to football because things can change so quickly. So before we get into all of that, let's just go down the draft class. And in the first round, they traded up to select Dalton Kincaid, the tight end from Utah, which I I kind of broke down on the last mini episode here on the Buffalo Beat. In the second round, the beginning of day two, they drafted guard from Florida, Osiris Torrance, with their 59th pick. And then at 91, they drafted Dorian Williams, the linebacker from Tulane. On day three, it was a lot of moving down. Their first pick was in the fifth round, right at the top, at 137. They traded down to 150 and wound up getting an extra pick this year. Took Justin Shorter at number 150, a wide receiver out of Florida. And then in the sixth round, when they were initially on the clock at 205, Traded down, picked up a 2024 six-round pick. They moved down to 230. And then they were on the clock again at 215, traded down again, picked up another six-round pick in 2024, moved down to 252. Then at number 230, they drafted Nick Broker, an offensive lineman. And to finish off the draft class, they drafted Alex Austin, the cornerback, out of Oregon State. So six players in total, some needs, some maybe slight needs, and certainly a lot of talking points as we figure out how this whole roster is going to shake out. So let's get into the things that they did and maybe the the both the short-term and the long-term effects of both of those. We'll start right off with the, the top pick, Dalton Kincaid, and where he factors in, and as this pet pick has kind of sat with me since the first day, I've gotten to like it a little bit more, really, each time I, I consider it, each time I think about it. In general, 
the idea of adding a tight end in the first round seemed like an extreme luxury. And that would be the case for most tight ends that they would add in a specific year. Because a lot of the guys they would be looking at are better inline tight ends. They're not as great of athletes. Um, Certainly there are some exceptions to the rule. But the reason that the Kincaid pick, I keep coming back to it being creative and maybe not innovative because other teams have done it before them. But certainly having the wherewithal to kind of change how they're going about their business on offense is something that I think should make Bills fans feel optimistic based on what they did in in the first round this year. They just didn't go into it saying... All right, we're only going to get a receiver. Did they want a receiver in the first round? Maybe. That that might have been their lead. But those, I think, three guys that would have fit them the best and what they were trying to do, that being Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, Jordan Addison and Zay Flowers, they were off the board within four picks right as the 20s got going. And it really took away the opportunity to move up because I don't think Brandon Bean really wanted to sacrifice his second round pick or even his third round pick for that matter. But having Kincaid on the board is, I don't know that it was necessarily their goal going in, but having the vision to move it all around And to do something they haven't done before and to target someone that they haven't before, which is this move tight end that you can put at the slot, you can line him up on the perimeter, you can line him up in line. He's basically a big receiver in what they're trying to do, at least what they are talking like here. The term that Brandon Bean used after that first round pick was, you know, it's not going to be 12 personnel. It's not really going to be 11 personnel. And he called it 11 and a half personnel. And that's, that's a, I think that's a quote I'm going to keep referring to as we kind of go along here because it really forces the defense into a decision. And I like that about that pick because if you have Dawson Knox on the field, you have Dalton Kincaid on the field and let's say Diggs and Davis along with a running back. You still get the athleticism from from Kincaid. And let me go and get his uh his measurements here. Because he's six foot, almost six foot four, 246 pounds. He didn't work out in the 40, but you know, he probably based basing it on how he looked in his games, he's probably one of the quicker tight ends available in this year's draft. Great hands, great feel for the zone, everything like that. And so you get this get this player who because of his size, kind of forces the defense into deciding whether or not they want to have three linebackers on the field or whether or not they want to have three uh, cornerbacks on the field and be a nickel. Both of the options come with a drawback because Kincaid would be a matchup problem For most teams. Now, some teams have like a bigger nickel corner or a bigger safety that could probably match up with Kincaid better than others. But for the most part, a lot of teams don't have that guy. And that will benefit what what the Bills are trying to do. So I like it from that perspective. 
And I think there is a a long-term, really substantial role available for him. It's, like I pointed out after the first round, it really all comes down to commitment and Ken Dorsey making it work. At least in the short term. Because you don't go out and you draft a first-round tight end just to, you know, not use him (laughs) a ton or not to have him become a pretty core player on your offense. Brandon Bean said after the draft that he wanted, coming into the into the festivities, he said he wanted to add an offensive weapon of, of some sort. And he got it in Dalton Kincaid. Top tight end on, uh, on a lot of teams' boards. First tight end off the board in one of the most tight end rich drafts in recent memory. So that all works. But what's the ripple effect here? What does this mean in terms of how it's going to look, who's going to be on the field, everything like that. I don't think it really impacts Dawson Knox all that much. I think he'll still probably get around that. Let's see, I I, I don't have his exact uh, play playtime percentages last year, but I want to say like in most games, it was hovering around the 80 to 85% mark, maybe a little bit less than 80. So I don't necessarily think that is going to change because he has really progressed as a blocker. And Kincaid... In year one, you're probably looking at maybe not like a close to to Knox's playtime percentage, but I would say anything around the 50% of offensive snaps mark is going to be a good thing for a, a rookie player trying to pick up their offense, and especially if they're doing it in a little bit of a different way. I think it really boils down to what it means for guys like Deontay Hardy, Khalil Shakir, Trent Sherfield. Those are the ones that uh, that I think are going to be negatively impacted most by Kincaid's arrival within the Bills' offense because Shakir and Hardy are both kind of vying against each other for time. Shakir probably has the better chance to be that more prototypical slot receiver. And when they want to go... 11 personnel straight up and get a little bit smaller and quicker, I think Shakir would probably be the lean, but there will still be a role for Hardy. So the way this whole thing kind of shakes out is going to be interesting. So Kincaid probably takes that role above all else. But but yeah, I think the long-term vision of Kincaid is good. I think he can develop into a really, like, not every snap player because few players, skill players on their offense are near every snap players. But I think if you say he's getting 75 to 85% of snaps by year three, I think, I think it would, I would believe it. So it really just depends on how much, like I said, they, they want to commit to it. So they brought in tight end Dalton Kincaid, not your average tight end, more, (laughs) Denard Robinson-style offensive weapon circa, I don't even remember what year he was drafted from from Michigan to Jacksonville, but that's what they called him. They called him offensive weapon, Denard Robinson. But I I think that's probably what they're thinking above all else. And sticking with the the pass-catching area, 
They also, another thing that they did in this column that, that we're looking at is they brought in Justin Shorter in the fifth round. He's someone that they brought in for a 30 visit. He's something they don't have within their top six at receiver in the fact that he's huge, six foot four, a true six foot four, 229 pounds, gives a lot in the special teams department and has a speed element to his game, even though he is a bigger guy. So by adding Justin Shorter, I found it interesting because he is more of the Gabe Davis role. And I think as the as the draft unveiled itself, once Dalton Kincaid was was brought in and he could kind of serve as that you know inside maybe even outside receiver sometimes but certainly giving them a lot of reps on the on the interior at slot receiver or inline or what have you that kind of checked off that need in their brain but they still had another spot available for Someone that they can develop more in line with what Gabe Davis's responsibilities are. And that's the X receiver position. You look at Davis, he's one of their bigger receivers. He, you know, before Shorter came around, was their biggest receiver of that top five. And the piece of the puzzle here is that Gabe Davis is a free agent. Now, I'm not saying that Justin Shorter as a fifth-round pick in what a, a few people consider to be not exactly the greatest receiver class. Solid, not spectacular, I think is, is the way a lot of people would kind of sum it up. But it at least gives the Bills a semblance of depth at receiver should they choose not to re-sign Gabe Davis or he gets priced out for what they are willing to pay him. So we don't know if there's going to be a a starting potential for for Justin Shorter down the line. The overall sentiment with day 3 players they're probably not going to turn into starters. They could be good depth, serviceable in, in games here and there if, if they hit, but usually not going to be locked in starters. You never know, because you can't rule out anything, but what I do like about that pick is that it gives them a plan at X receiver, and now they can... They don't have to feel like they're barren going into the 2024 offseason if they can't get something done with Gabe Davis or Gabe Davis doesn't prove it on the field in this upcoming season. So just a just a slight plan and giving them some things on special teams in the meantime is going to be really important for them because they had a lot of turnover with special teams this year. Getting younger, fresher, have Justin Shorter on a four-year deal. Yeah, that, that all works for them. Just really gives them something. So I, I did like what they what they did there. I thought when, once they got through day two, they hadn't added a receiver. 
I felt like the priority of what they were looking for at receiver kind of shifted to this bigger X receiver that still provided them a bit of a speed element. And that's exactly what they got in Justin Shorter. So are they done at receiver? I think probably. I think that this is the six with Diggs, Davis, Khalil Shakir, Deontay Hardy, Justin Shorter, and Trent Sherfield. I think that will be your six on the 53-man roster. You know, unless unless someone kind of plays their way into consideration. But I think those six guys are, are pretty solid bets for, for the team this year. And... While once it kind of it kind of drops down after Diggs and Davis, you chuck Kincaid into this bucket as well, and it makes it look a lot different because he is going to be playing more so of a receiver role than a than a tight end role. I would anticipate in his rookie season. We'll see how it kind of develops for him, but that's why it's offensive weapon. What what I talked about, and the last thing they did was address the offensive line in a fairly significant way. Not a fairly significant way, a very significant way. Bringing in Osiris Torrance with their second-round pick, guard out of Florida. They also brought in Nick Broker in the seventh round, someone that they like. Maybe has a chance to make the 53-man roster. I'm a little skeptical just based on the veterans that they have, but you know, looks like a solid potential practice squad guy. But I want to focus on Osiris Torrance here because this, and I don't think that Brandon Bean was necessarily meaning to make this type of statement because I I genuinely believe him when he says that Osiris Torrance was just a, a talent sticking out on their board. And sometimes that happens and it defies your general positional valuations. But the level of investment that they made in a guard is unprecedented for Brandon Bean in Buffalo in terms of the draft. The earliest he had used a draft pick on a guard, and keep in mind, guard has been a position that they have just kind of tried to get by on with you know, middle to low tier free agents, one year prove it guys that they bring in and and they got lucky with a lot of them. Like Quentin Spain came in and was good for a hot minute. John Feliciano gave him some serviceable years. Um, you know, Daryl Williams didn't wind up uh, working out on the interior, but he did for one year at right tackle. They've just been kind of trying to get by, but that their luck ran out a little bit last year with Roger Saffold, and that's why they invested a middle-tier contract in Connor McGovern. But this Osiris Torrance draft pick is really something they haven't done before because the earliest pick that they have had made at guard before this year was Wyatt Teller in the fifth round back in 2018. It's never like an absolute, oh, you can't take this this position before such and such round because sometimes there will be guys available that make you break your tendency, and I think that's what Osiris Torrance was. And I think it's a little bit different because 
you know, coming into the draft, Brandon Bean made an allusion to having such a late second round pick. The likelihood is that the player they select will be a reserve for them in 2023 with a an eye on starting in 2024. I don't think they had a first round grade on Osiris Torrance or anything like that. But I would be shocked if they didn't have a pretty early to maybe early mid second round grade on him. And that changes the formula a little bit here. I think Osiris Torrance absolutely has a chance to be the starter this season. And it puts someone like Ryan Bates on alert because Osiris Torrance started a lot of games at right guard throughout his college career. And Ryan Bates, I thought he played a lot better through the final two months of the season. But Osiris Torrance is the kind of blue chip prospect that can turn that spot into a strength while allowing Ryan Bates to improve the depth if Torrance indeed wins that job. But I think Torrance can win the job. And if you had to ask me right now, I would be slightly surprised if Osiris Torrance wasn't the starting right guard to begin the season. Just the level of investment is there. And especially because they have never really gone out on a limb for a guard like this before. They're going to want to maximize this rookie deal because guards, low-key, getting paid. The good ones, anyway, on the open market. So they're going to want to get everything they can out of this, this rookie deal. And will there be a competition? Yes, I think there will. The way I term, termed it in uh, my depth chart, that my Bill's depth chart that's dropping at The Athletic is... It's a 1A, 1B situation with with Ryan Bates and Osiris Torrance. I am willing to bet that the first time we see them on the practice field, at the same time, Ryan Bates will be with the starting unit and Osiris Torrance will be with the twos. And that'll flip as practices kind of go along. So that way, both guys get a fair shot at it. But I'm looking at this in the same way as the cornerback battle last year where I believe in most situations, the rookie will win the job. If the two players are similar in how they have done in training camp, how they have done in preseason, and it's a tie right at the finish line, tie goes to the rookie. In my mind, the only way that Ryan Bates is the starting right guard this season for the Buffalo Bills is if Osiris Torrance flat out loses it the way that Kair Elam did in training camp and preseason last year. Or if Ryan Bates flat out has a great summer and makes them kind of shift things around a little bit from that perspective. So, Torrance changes changes the math here with the offensive line. And let's say he does win the starting right guard job. What does that do for the depth in its entirety? I think Ryan Bates at that point potentially becomes 
the first player in the lineup at almost any position. Because he has experience at tackle. That's not where they prefer him to be. But I would say that Bates is probably an improvement over either David Quesenberry or Tommy Doyle. So that helps their depth there. He would likely, based on their level of investment in him, last year by uh, matching the restricted free agent offer sheet from the Chicago Bears, would likely be the guy, the first guy in for any of the guards, either of the guard spots, whether it be at right guard with Osiris Torrance or left guard with Connor McGovern. And then it's a will see at center because Bates has done that previously when Morse has missed time in 2022. But Connor McGovern also has some experience playing center. So maybe it's a case of, all right, uh, Morse is out for a game or two. They slide Connor McGovern over to center and Ryan Bates goes in at left guard. It really just depends on what they value more. Is it continuity in the other spots or putting the player that you believe to be a superior center, if they believe that to be the case with Connor McGovern at center? So it just changes the outlook for the offensive line in its entirety. And I will say they have done a nice job because if you remember this time last year, one of my biggest critiques was that this offensive line depth was some of the worst that we had seen from them in quite some time. They didn't really make many investments. Um, They were just trying to get by with a lot of one-year journeyman veterans like Greg Van Roten, David Quesenberry, who's still here, mind you, Greg Mance, Bobby Hart, and it just didn't work. Anytime any of those guys entered into the lineup, it was not good. And then when you had clearly struggling starters in Roger Saffold at left guard and in the early stages of the Orion Bates at right guard, you didn't have anyone to pivot to. It's not like you can just be like, okay, Greg Van Roten, get in there. It's the only time in Sean McDermott's tenure as a Bills head coach that he did not make a switch on the offensive line within the first month or two of the season. It has been a staple, but they just didn't have a, have anybody on the bench to do it. You're not knocking on the door for any of those guys in, in that situation. So I think they've done a nice job at addressing both the starting lineup and the depth along the offensive line to where they are in a lot better state should injuries occur. And I also think their starting lineup is a lot stronger than it was a year ago. But we'll get to another piece of that in a little bit. So we focused on the things that they did. Second column, things they kind of did. And I only have one position on this list, and that's linebacker. They brought in, in the third round, Dorian Williams out of Tulane. And... Right away, after the pick, Brandon Bean said that they are going to begin Williams' NFL career as an outside linebacker. 
And immediately, there was a lot of fire, maybe response from people on on Twitter saying, well, that's a waste of a pick. Why would they do that? Because Tremaine Edmonds isn't here, and they don't have a clear answer at middle linebacker. But I think, and this is why it falls into the bucket of things they kind of did, is because they did address the linebacker position. It's just they didn't do it in the way that I think a lot of people were expecting them to, which is find a middle linebacker. If there's a guy like Jack Campbell who wasn't on the board, or Drew Sanders who was on the board at number 59, mind you, then they would just do that, plug and play. He's the starter, and and you got your starter next to Matt Milano for the next four years. But it all boils back down to what we talked about leading into the draft and how maybe in their mind, it wasn't as big of a need as a lot of people. Did they go out and, and they draft a linebacker? Yes. But I would wager that the defensive tackle market in the draft really kind of took them by surprise and they just weren't able to to get anything done. And they probably looked at that third round pick, especially if a guy like Osiris Torrance was there in the second round, but they if they got to that third round pick, they probably felt good about at least someone being on the board for them by the time 91 came around. But there was a run, like the Bears took two defensive tackles within 10 picks. It was wild. Guy like Zach Pickens from South Carolina. I thought, okay, if they don't take a defensive tackle in the first two rounds, I'm looking at Zach Pickens as someone who could be there right at 91. Goes very early in the third round to the Bears, right after the Bears took Jervon Dexter from Florida in the in the late second round. And it does make me wonder if a defensive tackle prospect would have been there if maybe they just punted on the linebacker position in its entirety. So that's why this is under the they, things they kind of did bucket. Dorian Williams might have some flexibility to play the middle linebacker spot. But they also don't feel like they're in a totally horrible spot at at middle linebacker. They are unproven. And this is the big delineation between perceived needs and what they perceive their needs to be. They like Terrell Bernard. They think he has a chance to start. They, They think Tyrell Dotson has a lot of experience in their scheme. A.J. Klein is someone they trust if all else fails. They keep bringing up Balen Spector, even though I don't think Balen Spector is, a, at least right now, going to be a serious factor into the conversation. But they did spend a third-round pick on Terrell Bernard. And they have mentioned a few different times this offseason that they can see Bernard as a middle linebacker in their scheme and that he played the middle linebacker spot in Baylor. And when you sit and listen to Brandon Bean talk about the skills of Dorian Williams versus Terrell Bernard 
with Dorian Williams, it's all about like speed, beating players to the spot, and really using that athleticism. Whereas with Terrell Bernard, not as athletic as someone like Dorian Williams, but the way that he wins is with his instincts and his anticipation. And at the middle linebacker spot, that's probably what they're looking for at this point. Rather than a react after the offense declares, you could probably be in a better situation if the linebacker on the field is able to anticipate what the offense is doing and being able to diagnose it prematurely. So I think Terrell Bernard is the biggest winner of the draft right now because I know what Brandon Bean said saying, you know, Tyrell Dodson is probably the leader in the clubhouse right now, but he prefaced it by saying because he has the most experience at the middle linebacker spot within their scheme. That said, Terrell Bernard is going to get every opportunity to win this job. And I would consider him the favorite right now with AJ Klein being like the safety blanket here. So do not be surprised if Terrell Bernard is that is that starter and they feel completely comfortable with it and they let him go through his lumps. And at the end of the day, he was a day three pick and they would probably like to see what they have in, in him. Especially before they try to make an assessment if they didn't need another piece to the linebacker room in 2024. So I'm not ruling out Dorian Williams from being that middle linebacker. They just have a lot of guys vying for it right now. But it seems like Terrell Bernard would have the most glaring case to win that job. And no, he did not look good in... His um, his time on the field on defense during his rookie season. It was also very early into his career. So it could have been a case of just too much too soon for him. And we'll see how it kind of goes. But there's also an outcome where Terrell Bernard winds up being an average to slightly above average starter for them. But they got to find out. I was skeptical as the draft drew nearer that they were going to completely give up on their third round pick who had the opportunity to start in his second season by investing another top two round pick at his position. A late third round pick is a little different because, you know, just like Bernard, no guarantee that they're going to be a long-term starter, but they at least have starter traits. So that's why I think they felt comfortable with linebacker in that third round, like middle round range. And Williams might wind up being his best attributes as a special teams guy, and maybe down the line he becomes Milano's primary backup slash, uh, slash their third linebacker in... Uh, in base formation when teams go heavy on them. 
But right now, I think this is Bernard's job to lose. And I think they have some confidence in him. Whether they're right to, we'll see. All right, so that's things they kind of did. Let's go to things they didn't do. The one that I think everyone is going to point to, because we talked about it a lot on this podcast, offensive tackle. They did not draft a single offensive tackle. In fact, the only thing they did at offensive tackle the entire offseason was to re-sign David Quesenberry, which is all of these things are actions. An action signal intent. And the intention here is pretty apparent. If their words in the pre-draft process were not telling enough, the fact that they didn't add an offensive tackle of significance through the first three rounds, well, not at all in the draft, is that they believe Spencer Brown has a chance to cement himself as their long-term starting right tackle. And I know he did not have a good year last year. He didn't grade well for me, even in the stretch of the season when they felt like he was really starting to hit his stride, particularly, particularly near the end of the season. But Brown, they believe that he was kind of behind it a little bit in his second season because of the back injury, the back surgery, I should say, and then trying to play through it in the early stages of the season. Basically, the, the way that they they have boiled it down to was, no, we don't think that his early, the early part of his second season was a fair gauge of what he is or what he could be. So they are ready to see what they have in Spencer Brown. Now, it does help that they drafted Osiris Torrance and maybe Ryan Bates can, can help out as a backup offensive tackle that's better than David Quesenberry and Tommy Doyle. I would also not rule out them signing a better veteran offensive tackle, maybe someone that gets cut or someone that's still kind of sitting out there that just wanted to see how everything shook out. Not necessarily to compete with Spencer Brown for the starting job, but to improve and compete with David Quesenberry for that first tackle in. There is a spot there that I think is unspoken for. So they didn't do that and probably was frustrating for some, though... I think that they believe he has a chance to be really consistent this year, and that's they want to see it out. I don't know that I would do the same based on what I saw last year, but I think the name to remember here, and I've brought this up a couple of times on the show now, is Wyatt Teller. Wyatt Teller was not a top three-round pick. He was a fifth-round pick, but he did show potential in his first season. They wound up trading him because they didn't they weren't sure he was going to make the 53 man roster or maybe they just didn't really see him as a fit for how they wanted to block back then. And what he went on to do in Cleveland, the year that they traded him has to have stuck in the craw of Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. 
So with offensive linemen, which sometimes takes time with these guys. Like Deion Dawkins wasn't Deion Dawkins until his he really kicked into gear his third season. So they're hoping for that sort of trajectory with him. But they have to allow the player that they believe shows enough flashes to prove them right. Sometimes these players prove them wrong. But smaller school guy, this is all these are all the things they that they allude to. But this year is absolutely a pivotal one for Spencer Brown. He has to prove it this season. If he doesn't, if he continues to play along the same plane, I think it's done. Or they will look very hard at trying to find someone to replace him. Maybe as early as their first round pick in 2024. But if he hits, that's a potential long-term solution. And that's something they have to be interested in as well. All right, so they didn't draft an offensive tackle. They also didn't draft a defensive tackle. And that's something that Brandon Bean very much wanted to do. The way that, uh, well, when he was asked the question, friend of the show, Matt Perino of Syracuse.com, asked him, were you annoyed that you weren't able to add a defensive tackle? And Brandon Bean said, yeah, that's that's a pretty good way to put it. They just never were in a spot where the value met the need of where they picked. And by the time it got to the fifth round and they just didn't have that player there, they're like, okay, well, defensive tackle is not going to happen. And they're not just going to take one in the seventh round just to take one because they want someone in the seventh round that would actually have a chance to develop into something for them. And they found more value with the cornerback from Oregon State, Alex Austin, and an offensive lineman that they could develop. So defensive tackle, now they don't have a long-term plan at all. All four of their top guys are still free agents at the end of the year. That being Ed Oliver, Daquan Jones, Jordan Phillips, and Tim Settle. And I also think that they would like to add another defensive tackle to their room, just in general. And I'm not talking undrafted. I would not be surprised if they go out and they sign a veteran player to maybe not a substantial contract, but a good enough contract to where they can come in and give them some really good reps and give them some flexibility for what they want to do. And the one that that made a visit that kind of sticks in my brain from when he made a visit, because I think he's a pretty good player, and I think he would be a compelling fit next to a couple of guys, is Puna Ford, who longtime Seattle Seahawks player. He really, I think, could flourish next to Ed Oliver and give them the depth to really counter a run a run uh, game if Daquan Jones isn't available. Because we remember what happened in the Bengals game. It was the only game last season that the Bills were without Daquan Jones. And while I think it's important to note that the Bills were pretty out of gas physically and emotionally at that point. It's not an excuse because they should they should have been a little bit more prepared for a playoff game, but it it's also from a human side, you also have to feel for them with with everything that they had gone through 3 weeks before with DeMar Hamlin. 
But even still, you can put up more of a fight, and they just had nothing in terms of run defense. Tim Settle is not a great one technique. I'm not sure what his fit is on this defense. He's, he's like an, an average player. He's not really a great pass rusher. He's not really a great run defender. He's, he's just average to slightly above average in both departments. Flash play every once and again. He just didn't really prove himself last year. Jordan Phillips is more three technique than he is one technique, even though he's one of the bigger defensive tackles on the team. So what happens when Daquan Jones gets hurt? I mean, Daquan Jones is in his 30s. Injuries happen when when players get older. So to put all your hopes and dreams on one one technique after knowing what you know after that Bengals game it's not a conducive situation. So I'm looking at a guy like Puna Ford. I think he could come in here, be a really nice fit for what they want to do. They'll dress eight to nine defensive linemen every game, maybe five defensive tackles, sometimes not. Maybe Tim Settle's a healthy scratch guy this year. Maybe Jordan Phillips is a healthy scratch guy, but they'll have options. Regardless, I, I really like the fit of Puna Ford in Buffalo, and I think that's the guy that I would keep a close eye on as as uh, they go into the next week or two. To once Now that the... Um, the deadline for qualifying free agents for the compensatory formula, which the Bills are very cognizant of because they're probably going to get a third-round pick for Tremaine Edmonds. That deadline is just after the draft. So once once that deadline passes, they can begin to sign guys for an amount that would probably qualify for the compensatory formula, but they wouldn't have to worry about it at that point. So keep your eye on on Puna Ford. I think he's he's someone that's a compelling case. Another thing that they didn't do was draft a safety. They did draft a cornerback, but they did not draft a safety. But I find it interesting and perhaps telling about what they might want to do. Because they feel like Alex Austin, their seventh round pick from Oregon State, has a chance to make the 53-man roster. It's a little bit of a struggle to find a spot for him. I I have to go through and do like a an actual projection. But if Austin is making the team, they already have five shoe-ins at, wait, no, maybe six shoe-ins at, at cornerback as it is. Tredavious White, Taron Johnson, Kair Elam, Dane Jackson, Christian Benford, Saran Neal. That's six. Cam Lewis... Also, sneakily, got a pretty solid amount of guaranteed money. Doesn't mean he's going to be safe, but got a pretty sneaky amount there. So he is a legitimate 53-man roster option because they really like him on special teams. And there was a lot of turnover on special teams this year. So they're going to want to have some familiar faces. Like, maybe they look at Cam Lewis in the form of what Taiwan Jones was on their on their roster last year. Taiwan Jones was a running back like on paper, but 
You know how many snaps he took at running back over the last three years? Probably you can count it on one hand. That might be their vision for Cam Lewis. And while he's a cornerback on paper, you should probably put the letters ST with a with a slash ahead of CB if he's going to make this team. But still, that's, that's seven. There were six ahead of Cam Lewis. And now you're throwing Alex Austin into the mix. So that's potentially eight cornerbacks you're keeping. That's even, even for the Bills, that's a lot. That's a lot for any team. Then when you throw safeties into the mix here, Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, Taylor Rep, all clear shoe-ins for the 53-man roster. You don't know how DeMar Hamlin is going to react physically, mentally, emotionally, and it would be foolish to try and predict it. Just go with it. Like I said before, be a human about it and go with it one day at a time. See how he progresses. Progress isn't always going to be a, a steady incline. But just continue to monitor the situation. If he makes a team, that's that's now 12 that we're talking about. I wonder if... I don't know that the, the drafting of Alex Austin is going to be the thing that pushes them in this direction. But this is a little bit of a, a convoluted situation. But, you know, it's a podcast. Why not, right? So I asked Brandon Bean after the draft... Because we we sit here and we talk about potential contract extensions. And the two that come up most often are Ed Oliver and Gabe Davis. Two guys that I think they would be very much open to extending for the long term. So I asked Brandon Bean about Micah Hyde, who's a free agent at the end of 2023. And whether or not that's something they would like to get done. And... He said, you know, I haven't really thought about it to this point. And it's not something that's really been broached either by Hyde's representation or by the team to Hyde representation. And that the main focus is about him being refreshed and getting ready to be back on the field. So that tells me at least one little clue that Getting Hyde signed past 2023 is not high up on their priority list as it stands today. I think the Bills are probably going to want to see what Hyde is this year before even considering making that investment because a 30 uh, in his 30s starting safety who just had a serious neck surgery there might, for as much as he has done th- for the franchise throughout his time, there's going to be a little bit of trepidation here. It's just natural. But they also don't have a long-term plan here at the free safety position. And there are, are a bunch of questions about not if DeMar Hamlin is going to try to come back to football, but what is he going to be when he gets there? Is 
I don't think that they're sitting here on April 29th or early May saying DeMar Hamlin's going to be one of the four safeties on the 53-man roster. He very well could start the year on on a reserve list of some of some kind. It would be unwise to expect DeMar Hamlin to do all that. They don't have any sort of plan at free safety. So I kind of wonder, and this is not Alex Austin being being the catalyst here, but having as many corners as they do, it almost feels like it's an optimal time to switch Christian Benford over to safety, doesn't it? They didn't draft a safety. They've got a lot of depth at corner. Quality depth at corner, mind you. Like Dane Jackson is probably going to be the first cornerback in. And past him, you have Cam Lewis, who can play both outside and inside. I mean, heck, you can even go back to Christian Benford if, if you need to, if you have that many injuries. But I think the most logical thing here because I believe Benford's best spot, if he were to switch to safety, would be to that Micah Hyde role rather than the Jordan Poyer role. If it were me, the logic would take me to, okay, start the clock with Christian Benford, get him to uh, into this transition from cornerback to safety because... The way that Kyir Elam responded last year, uh, late in the season, and how he really kind of established himself makes him the locked-in starter on, at boundary cor- corner going forward. And they have Dane Jackson back, so you are you have that base covered. Benford has no, for as much as they like him, he has no short-term or long-term look at becoming an every-week starter for them. But at free safety, that's different. So the why it all just kind of lines up is because Benford would be able to start the clock where they have ample depth at safety and they wouldn't have to depend on him to get into the game right away and, and ruin his progress. Check. They have someone who has mastered their scheme at the position that he would probably play at safety, in Micah Hyde. He's signed through 2023. And Micah Hyde is one of those guys who is very forthcoming and willing to coach up everybody to get the best out of everybody and and lend his expertise. That's a check. A potential long-term starting role for Christian Benford, who, again, they like and might be better at than he was at Boundary Corner last year. And he was, he was still pretty good at Boundary and Corner. That's another check. So where... And it also would potentially give them a solution for 2024, especially if they're not thinking about extending Micah Hyde into 2024 right now. Like I said, convoluted. But I think there's something to it. So I would not be surprised if they start the clock at Christian Benford. Maybe not at these uh, upcoming off-season workouts, but maybe they'll 
they'll dip into a little bit, but training camp, if I had to guess, I think that's where this is headed, just based on logic. So that's something they didn't do, and it could be telling to Christian Benford's future. And the last position, the thing they didn't do, running back. They didn't add anything other than Damian Harris this offseason. And I don't know that they're going to really go out on a limb to add something immediately in the summer. This is a huge vote of confidence for James Cook. And James Cook, to me, is looking at a pretty good chance and perhaps the best chance of any of these day two running backs that they've drafted over the last several years to be the guy. Now, I don't think he's going to be the bell cow guy or anything like that. I think they're still going to going to want to use a complementary system between him and Damian Harris. But the simple fact is not much depth to speak of. And Naheem Hines, for as much maybe he showed in Indianapolis, just did not really fit in with what they were trying to do on offense last year and had to take a pay cut to stay, which is probably going to be in a special teams role as, as a kickoff and punt returner above all else. Damian Harris is someone that they like because he offers something different. He's a little bit more physical, can run in between the tackles, can get tough yards. That's not exactly James Cook's game. But the rest of it, outside zone, wide rushes, pass catching, screens, that's all James Cook. So this was, if Terrell Bernard was the biggest winner of the 2023 NFL draft, the second biggest winner was James Cook with an honorable mention to Spencer Brown. I truly wonder, because there were a lot of um, players on the team last year who were like, James Cook is good. He's he, he's a good player, and and you're gonna see see why soon. And they didn't really have a have an early role for him, but he kind of grew into it. Sean McDermott has has delivered one of those one of those messages, off season messages, to try and fire up the player in a pretty big year, and that's usually because the coach knows that they're going to depend on that player uh, quite a bit. So Cook has a has a great shot to prove that he can be the guy in the Bills offense. And it's not even as though they have a long-term plan for anyone else but him. They can save $5 million by cutting Naheem Hines next year. And like I said, he's probably more of a special teams guy. And Damian Harris is on a one-year deal. And he's also often injured. This could very well turn into James Cook's backfield, James Cook's backfield here. And yeah, it's a, it's, it's a sneaky one because they have mostly split their carries. But I could definitely see him having a... Not a large advantage, but being the the top guy, maybe like a 60, 40, 
57-43 sort of split. But again, we'll see. He has to prove it. And McDermott even said it. He's like, he he knows he needs he needs to prove it this year. And probably James Cook is the reason why they felt like they didn't have to add a running back. Could they have at some point? Sure. There were some there were some guys on day three, but at that point in the draft, they're like, okay, well, this guy probably isn't going to factor in to 2023. So, yeah, James Cook, big winner, and we'll see if he can prove it as uh, the offseason workouts and the training camp gets going in late July and August. All right. So the draft is done. Next up. The Bills will have a rookie minicamp, get into OTAs. Then by the time mid to late June rolls around, it's going to be mandatory minicamp. That's going to be that break in the action from late June to probably the third week in July. And then training camp gets back into gear. But we're it's starting to shift closer to the 2023 season. The next big thing on the NFL calendar will be the scheduler release, which is likely to happen in the second week of May if, if uh, it follows the same track as last year as well. So a lot of exciting stuff for the Bills. But in general, I feel like this draft certainly was a departure from what they had done in previous drafts to try and build up that defense and because they had Josh Allen and uh, Stefan Diggs and they thought they were good. But now they're starting to fight fire with fire in, in offense because they have seen these supremely talented defenses wilt when things get real in the postseason. So adding a guy like Dalton Kincaid, adding offensive linemen is in a significant manner. These are things that could really help the Bills in getting to where they, they want to go. However, now it's a little bit of a different twist to the season because the Bills are clearly behind the Chiefs because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. But now the perception around the league is that the Bengals have passed the Bills. And that's not going to sit well with them. It's it's not going to be the same year where everyone is expecting the Bills to be, be the team. They're not going to be people's Super Bowl favorites in 2023. And I almost wonder if they prefer it that way because there's a lot of expectations that were placed upon them. Did a lot of unexpected things happen along the way? Sure, it did. But there are also uncharacteristic things that happen, whether it be the offense going stagnant and the depth that they thought they had proving to be not as good as they believed it to be. And they set out to to fix all that. So along with a different perception of the year and maybe a a different way of of doing things in the offseason... I'm very intrigued by by this uh, 2023 Bills roster, and I'm very much looking forward to see how kind of pieces together as uh, the offseason workouts get going. All right, so that's going to do it for me. 
The Bills draft, the NFL draft in 2023, done. Another one, done and dusted. And I thank you all for listening, reading, subscribing, everything that you do, because the draft is obviously one of my favorite times of the year. I get to nerd out as much as possible. You guys put up with me. I appreciate it. And now we get to get into the, the real football, figure out depth charts, and and see who wins starting jobs. That's That's part of the thrill, too. So, like I said, thank you all for this entire draft process. It's been really fun, again, trying to figure out the entire puzzle. I think we did a pretty good job at, at trying to see where the Bills might be headed this year. And, uh, and now it's just a matter of what they do with it. All right. So my name is Joe Biscalia. Thank you all once again for listening. And the next time we will talk to you will be in a week or two when the schedule for the NFL 2023 calendar is near as well as some off-season workouts. All right. Talk to you then. See ya. Thank you.